Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by senior United States District Judge Mark Wolf, who's also a Spring 2014 Fellow at the Institute of Politics. Your Honor, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me. You've presided over a variety of high-profile cases, um, several involving corruption. Um, maybe the most pertinent example recently was that of Massachusetts House Speaker Sal DeMacy. It's kind of interesting because I've always looked at corruption in the United States as something that just might pop up every once in a while that um, you know isn't necessarily systemic. This seems like a, a case where it came out in the open. Well, if I can take a step back, uh, there's a long history of corruption in Massachusetts, generally in Boston particularly. Uh, for example, Mayor Curley, John Michael Curley, was reelected mayor of Boston from federal prison. Uh, but in every generation, there have also uh, been really admirable, able people in Massachusetts who have contested that corruption. Uh, the DeMacy case, I think, uh, does say something important about the United States. First, we're not distinguished because we have no corruption. The DeMacy case resulted from a constellation of resources that exist in the United States that don't exist in many countries throughout the world. Uh, the DeMacy, in DeMacy, the jury found proven beyond a reasonable doubt that DeMacy had extorted bribes uh, uh, in connection with $17 million of public computer contracts. Mm -hmm. The case, uh, in effect, was started because a disappointed bidder expected an honest process sense that this one was rigged and complained to the state inspector general. The inspector general investigated, found irregularities in the process of letting the contract and invalidated it. Mm -hmm. That was public, not secret. The Boston Globe got the Inspector General's letter invalidating the contract and uh, invested many months and a lot of money investigating. The United States Attorney and the FBI alerted uh, to the information developed by the Globe uh, constituted a grand jury they were able to subpoena documents, and they found hundreds of thousands of dollars going to the speaker's friend and accountant. So they brought these charges. The case was randomly assigned to me, but we don't rely on judges. Uh, we rely on jurors to determine whether it's been proven that an official is guilty. And it's very hard uh, to tamper with or influence a jury. In the DeMacy case, the jury found that it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he had, in effect, extorted bribes, and therefore it was up to me, uh, the judge, to impose the sentence, and I sentenced him to eight years in prison, which is reportedly more than twice as long as the longest sentence in a corruption case in, the, in Massachusetts, but among other things, he was the third speaker in the row to be convicted. Neither of them went to prison, so I felt and said when I issued the sentence uh, that it was important to send a message that would hopefully deter others. So it seems like when we look at <coughs> corruption internationally, we, we think about uh, corruption that's happening in China, that's happening in Russia. Um, we kind of assume that it's systemic. But in the United States, I mean, here in Massachusetts, like you said, three speakers in a row convicted of co corruption. Um, 
we don't, I, I get the sense that we don't see it as systemic. Is there a big difference between how these systems are, you know, operating? There is a big difference. Uh, corruption in the United States, we regard, people regard, as aberrant conduct. <clears throat> in contrast, and, and I have worked in both China and Russia, uh, in both of those countries, uh, corruption has started at the top. Uh, the highest officials have been corrupt. And that corruption is founded on a justified sense of impunity, that nothing will happen. For powerful people, there's no serious threat of getting uh, prosecuted and punished, so there's no meaningful incentive not to do it. That is a fundamental difference. Earlier, you've brought up the potential for an international uh, corruption court of some kind. Can you describe what what that is and what makes it different from you know the international criminal court that already exists? Well, the international criminal court uh, was established because of the culture of impunity with regard to genocide and other massive human rights abuses that exists in many countries. Uh, the most egregious violations of human rights were being perpetrated by people like Charles Taylor, uh, who was the head of the country. Mm -hmm. So obviously, when the head of the country is ultimately responsible, uh, there are not going to be investigations and prosecutions of human rights abuses. Right. And again, there was a kind of culture of impunity uh, that abetted these violations. In my view, uh, corruption is very expensive. The World Bank uh, in 2013 estimated that 47% of Russia's GDP is lost to corruption. It is destabilizing uh, by all reports. Uh, the revolution in the Ukraine uh, was sparked by indignation at corruption. But most fundamentally, in my view, uh, corruption is a violation of human rights. Governments are supposed to be facilitating uh, our pursuit of life, liberty, right. and happiness. Uh, but nobody consents to live in a government governed by bribes. Uh, corruption is not unless a, you're the one paying the bribes. Well, well, corrupt. <laughs> yes, corruption is not a victimless crime. You don't right. find poor and powerless people uh, paying bribes. Right. So, the conditions that uh, prompted the international community to create the International Criminal Court as a result of the 1998 Rome Treaty also exist with regard to corruption, which, as I say, I think can be properly viewed, should be properly viewed as a violation of human rights, too. The International Corruption Court, I advocate, could be part of the existing International Criminal Court. It's needed because uh, in countries where the culture of corruption starts at the top, uh, there's not, as I said, the will or capacity to investigate or prosecute or punish. Uh, corrupt public officials uh, use international uh, channels of commerce uh, to hide or launder uh, their money. Right. And most uh, countries 
I, th- I think there was a story about uh, Russian oligarchs storing all their money in London, actually. Exactly. No, it, it, exactly. Or uh, it'll go through uh, Cyprus or the Cayman mm-hmm. Islands or usually several of these places and end up back in Russia mm-hmm. or end up in real estate in New York or London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most countries don't have the sophisticated capacity to conduct international money laundering investigations. Mm-hmm. They don't have independent, experienced prosecutors to investigate corruption. In Turkey, where I also was doing a lot of work, and I say was because the people I've been working with have been removed, uh, when uh, people close to the prime minister uh, were discovered with tens of millions of dollars in cash in their homes, Mm -hmm. and there's a recorded phone call from the prime minister allegedly to his son telling his son to get the cash out of the house uh the prosecutor has been removed and sent to remote parts of the country and they shut down twitter and they shut down twitter <laughs> or try uh, so you most countries don't have independent able prosecutors they don't have a history uh or a judiciary at present of honest uh, impartial independent judges so in, in my conception, there would be an international corruption court or a section of the international criminal court devoted to corruption. Mm-hmm. It would have a core of elite investigators capable of following the money. Mm-hmm. You would have a core of excellent impartial prosecutors uh, adept at presenting complex cases. It would have impartial judges. Mm-hmm. And it would operate as the international criminal court does on the concept of complementarity. With regard to human rights abuses, if a nation that is subject to the jurisdiction of the court demonstrates that it has the will and capacity to investigate and prosecute uh, fairly uh, alleged abuses of human rights, that country and its leaders are not subject to prosecution in the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if a country uh, demonstrated the will and capacity to investigate and prosecute corruption honestly, impartially, uh, it wouldn't, in my view, be in, subject to the jurisdiction in that case of the International Corruption Court. But, and, and this would, among other things, give nations the incentive to improve uh, their own ability and demonstrate their own ability to combat corruption because... Uh, it would be less of an incursion on national sovereignty. I'm kind of curious why a you know uh, someone like a Charles Taylor or even uh, Prime Minister Erdogan, why would they even want to sign on to something like this? Well, that's a uh, very good uh, question. But first, to a certain extent, uh, almost all countries in the world have already undertaken obligations to combat corruption. I think about 170 are signatories to the United Nations Convention uh, Against Corruption. Uh, More than 40, uh, or at least 40, I think the last may have been Russia, have signed the World Trade Organization Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Treaty Against Corruption because these are conditions of, say, belonging to the World Trade Organization. So the International Corruption Court, in my view, would be a new enforcement mechanism but not a new obligation. It would okay. just essentially be giving teeth uh, 
to uh, uh, the undertakings or to, mm-hmm. to, to violation to to the threat that you would be punished if you violate these uh, obligations that so, already exist. So how would it complement, say, uh, systems that are already working, like the, what you've described in the United States and elsewhere? Well, in, in, in my view, uh, I, I would hope the United States would advocate for and certainly sign on to an international corruption court Initially, we advocated for the International Criminal Court, and then we refused uh, to sign up and indeed have essentially tried to undermine it, at least with regard to Americans. We have a tendency to do that. (laughs) Well, you know, I think— Thinking of Kyoto as well. (laughs) I I think there, you know, was a fear uh, that the United Nations, despite uh, our veto— uh, would not uh, be a fair forum, and that secretaries of state or military leaders would be hauled before the court, uh, the International Criminal Court. Uh, I would hope that there wouldn't be the same kinds of concerns with regard to corruption. Uh, we do take corruption seriously, seriously in this country, and uh, any honest application of the principle of complementarity, I think, would assure uh, that corrupt officials in the United States would not be prosecuted internationally. In addition, prosecution of uh, corrupt public officials from abroad uh, would actually be in the interest of United States business. Uh, First, uh, we have uh, many, many ethical uh, companies in the United States who are disadvantaged by corruption. Second, we rely now primarily on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was enacted after Watergate and only recently energetically uh, enforced. So Siemens and Daimler companies on the American stock exchange, but also American companies, get uh, prosecuted in Brooklyn. And it generally, around the world, uh, generates uh, from corrupt, officials and in corrupt countries, animosity to the United States, and a desire not to do business uh, with the United States companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, If uh, the prosecutions were internationalized, it would actually improve uh, the competitive chances of American companies. And particularly, if corruption, if progress was made in combating corruption, and there was less the playing field was level, mm-hmm. uh, American companies would get a lot more business. So this is a fairly new idea. Um, the, the process to implement something like this must be a, a pretty long vision. Um, what, have you been involved with anything, uh, actual concrete steps in trying to push this? Well, there doesn't seem to be anything in the literature about this. I actually... <laughs> developed the idea and first spoke about it at the St. Petersburg International Legal Forum in Russia in May of 2012. Uh, I've just, uh, last week, was speaking about it at the World Forum on Governance in Prague. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would say this is a pretty embryonic idea. Uh, However, while many people, including me, can point out the obstacles in you, asked a very good question, you know, why would anybody sign up for this? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that encouraged me, uh, viewing this as a long-term proposition, is the response I've received from younger people. I haven't 
email that came in about an hour ago for a young man named Nathan Samuels, who has for about the last four years been running in Uganda, uh, an organization that uses social media to combat corruption. It's called Not In My Country. He loves this idea. He says, I want to be uh, the first soldier in this. He's already mm -hmm. talked to somebody in the since I discussed this last Thursday. Yeah. He's come back to the United States. He's talked to somebody in the State Department about it. Uh, the other thing is uh, I got a very positive reaction from young people, 28 mm -hmm. years old, uh, who were instrumental in sparking the revolution in the Ukraine which they say was fueled by indignation again about corruption. Mm -hmm. And in many of these countries, there's a sense of hopelessness, despair, uh, because they could describe better than I did uh, the culture of impunity that exists because the most corrupt, powerful officials have a justified sense that nothing will happen to them. And the idea that there would be an extraterritorial threat, mm -hmm. something outside their boundaries that would, uh, you know, be menacing uh, to corrupt officials who are uh, looting their countries uh, at the expense of the poorest and most powerless, uh, they say is very hopeful. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Mm -hmm.